Thanks for tuning in to the final week of our meme series here at City Church. We are honored and blessed to have you join us for our online worship experience. It is our intent to share the Word of God with our local community, online viewers, and church family. So if you don't have a church home and you live in the greater Savannah area, we would love to have you visit us at 1624 East 38th Street. Remember, resources like these are meant to be supplemental, so get yourself to church. If you would like to find out more about City Church, you can do so by going to citychurch.life or by clicking the link in the description. Now I want to move to week three of our series, Memes. So uh, uh, in week one, we talked about love. In week two, uh, Caleb Hannon uh, stepped in for us and communicated on the idea of inspiration. And so today we're going to be diving into our third week of this series. And I want to tell you, I uh, was riding down the road with Isaac when I was out of town uh, a couple of weeks ago, and just uh, we were actually listening to uh, some Bible teaching, and I just, riding down the road, like God just connected some dots for me, and I shared with you guys last week that, uh, man, it got me fired up, and I'm really excited to share what uh, that revelation that happened then today, and so uh, I'll tie it all together towards the end, and, and hopefully it'll impact you the way that it has impacted me. So uh, this idea of a meme, uh, the definition is an element of a culture or system of behavior that may be considered to be passed from one individual to another by non-genetic means, especially imitation. This idea of imitation is really important. So when we talk about like the idea of meme or meme culture, we're really talking about this form of imitation. And so we find this, uh, uh, the Greek word for, for meme, we find it actually inside of scriptures in the New Testament talking about being imitators of Christ. And so the idea is that, is that when we meme something, we're taking this idea and we're duplicating it, we're passing an idea forward. And a lot of times what we do is we attach our own meaning into it. And, and, and so it takes on like a life of its own. And we were jo- I was joking about myself becoming a meme and then uh, somebody sent me this, start sermon series on memes becomes actual meme. And so uh, I guess I entered into that world. So today I wanna talk to you about culture and how culture is uh, in itself, the, the meme is how we imitate culture, how we move culture forward. But, but the truth is that culture itself, the idea of culture, uh, really is a meme within itself. Uh, and so I, I, hope that, I hope that you can track with me as, as we go. Uh, I looked up the definition for the word culture, and, and this is the primary definition that came up. The arts and other manifestations of human intellectual achievement regarded collectively or the customs, arts, social institutes, and achievements of a particular nation, people, or other social group. I think these are really good uh, definitions uh, when we're talking about the idea of what a culture is. And, and the truth is, is that there are a lot of cultures. It's not just a single culture, but there are a lot of cultures. And we are a part uh, of multiple cultures. And so uh, by being a part of multiple cultures, cultures have overlap. All right, and so uh, cultures, uh, so each of us, we might not, uh, if we were trying to, to 
use this definition and paint a picture of what culture is today if I were to look at one of you and create that like restrained definition and then go to somebody else it would look slightly different because uh, we have different influences in our lives I liked this definition the best though the social behavior and norms found in human society So I want to draw off of all of these ideas about the arts and creativity, the things that are an expression of who we are, and this idea of social behaviors and norms that are found in human society. Because this idea around uh, social norms really plays a huge, has a huge impact in the behavior uh, that a lot of us have uh, and the choices that we make. And so today I want to tell you that culture influences. When it comes to the decisions that we make, the culture that we identify with, and then sometimes even the culture that we might unknowingly be a part of influences our decisions. It influences the way that we do life. Uh, Culture influences the music we listen to, the movies that we watch, the peer group that we associate with, and culture also divides. Uh, There is a tremendous amount of divide when it comes to various cultures. And so a lot of times uh, people feel this need to first identify with a particular culture and then let that identification, that culture, lead how they interact with subcultures, okay? And so these can be anything from race. Uh, Somebody can take their race. They can say, listen, I need to be loyal to my race. I need to be loyal to what's best for my race. I need to be loyal to the ideas within my race. And so then if anything is, is, is contrary or anything comes against that, there will be, we will make sacrifices sometimes because uh, we have bought into a race culture or a, uh, a political culture. And so we'll make sacrifices in our lives because we identify on the left or we identify on the right or we want to be in the middle. And, and, and wherever it is that we land, a lot of times we will make sacrifices in our lives and other in, in various areas to help push this culture forward, okay? And so sometimes that means that we'll make sacrifices of our resources. Sometimes it'll mean that we make sacrifices of our integrity, uh, of the things that we have claimed in the past. We will change our point of view. We see this with politics all the time. You can watch politicians and and they'll say something today uh, and then in a year they'll be standing totally in a different Uh, uh, taking a totally different stand on the same topic. Why is that? Because they'll sacrifice their own personal beliefs if they even, maybe they don't even have them. They're just going with the sway of what the political culture of the time is. Uh, Gender, we'll do the exact same thing. We'll say that we need to identify with the culture of men or the culture of women or whatever divide there is that falls down into that. Take too long to dive into that rabbit hole, but, but people become loyal then to the, to, to the culture of the gender that they uh, are a part of, and then we end up with uh, toxic masculinity and uh, different levels of feminism, and, and, and it, it's, it's, it, it can become so much so that we will again begin to sacrifice 
resources, our integrity, the things that we believe deep inside of us to help push the culture forward. Okay, I hope you're tracking with me right here. What I'm saying is that the cultures around us tend to have a lot of influence in our lives and they can divide us. And so we can sit right here at City Church identifying as Christians, followers of Christ, and we can sit here and we can worship together and we can scream that we're moving the kingdom of heaven forward and then we can jump into a conversation around any of these other cultures and immediately become divided and begin to tear down or push down that unity that we were experiencing. It happens socially when we're talking about finances. People who have a lot of money tend to be very protective of people who have a lot of money and people who don't have a lot of money tend to be protective of people who don't have a lot of money. And so depending on which uh, culture you're, you're, you're a part of, that will then cause you to uh, vote a certain way and to uh, push certain agendas. It will cause you to buy into this culture or a cultural idea that creates, again, a sacrifice of resources, a sacrifice, a sacrifice of time, a sacrifice of integrity. Maybe deep down you're going, I don't know that this is right, but for the protection of the greater good to, to help these people advance, I need to be a part of this culture. And so I will make those sacrifices. And, and then there's faith. And I put this one last, and, and I'll explain why, because I think the Bible lays out an argument for us that faith is the one that, that suffers the most from this cultural influence and divide. Faith, for as much as we declare and, and, and lay claim to our identity in Christ, uh, faith is the thing that, that just seems to take the most damage when it comes to the other cultures that we identify with. And, and I think that the reason that that is is because we come in to these other cultures with an expectation, well, not everybody's a Christian. It's not my job to condemn them because they're not a Christian. And so because they're not a Christian, then I need to set my faith to the side for the greater good. And, and I've, I've heard this said uh, by people. And so what happens is, is we end up with, with me saying, I believe in God. And then the world, they're like, you are so so crazy and our response is what I mean I don't believe everything he says right it's like I believe in God but, 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 but don't you want to be, don't be scared I don't believe everything that he says you know there was that verse in there that I, I, we're not in agreement on like like we're mostly together and it's like we have to create some comfort because we still want to be a part of that culture or, or God couldn't know what today's society would be like and then God's like, am I a joke to you, right? Uh, this idea that's like, well, you know, I believe in God, but the Bible, you know, I mean, I know it says all this stuff, but, but how could God know that it would be like it was today? Or, or, or how could the people that God was using to write the scriptures know what it would be like today? And, and I think God's like, you know, like, what, what are you talking about? Uh, or, or like this idea here, one does not simply obey scripture, Right? And so the sacrifices that we make with our faith is that we justify off the teachings that we find within Scripture. What, what are the ways that we do this, right? We, we do this when it comes to premarital sex. 
when it comes to premarital sex, the word of God gives a lot of instruction. We're to be teaching our children that they are to wait until they are married. Uh, Young people are to, as they identify with Christ, they're to wait until they're married. And yet, within our church, we have a culture that says, "Eh, you know, I don't really know that that applies to me. Or, hey, I'm covered by grace, right? I'm good. And why is that? It's because we want to fit into one culture while we kind of keep our foot in the Jesus culture, not the band, the, uh, the actual culture of Christ, right? This is what we want to do. We want to, we want to be able to be on, on all sides, and, and then we'll, we'll kind of tie in this idea of what it's like. Well, I got to be culturally relevant. You just don't understand. What good is my testimony if I can't, if I'm not able to identify with, with my brothers and my sisters and my friends and, and all these people that don't know Jesus? And so, yeah, I make a few sacrifices, but God understands. And then we go back into the word of God and God's like, hey, you don't need to make sacrifices. I got this. You don't have to be the one that goes in and, and, and gives up on your moral conviction to somehow fit in. I've got this. So this inconsistency in standing first for the integrity of Scripture provides ammunition for people uh, outside of our culture. What I mean by this is that when we play that game back and forth where it's like, oh man, this doesn't apply to me, you know, uh, my views on, on life, you know, they don't exactly line up with the word of God. That means I can hang out with you guys over here. And then the people who do not believe in God, right, they turn, they turn us into the memes. We become some type of joke imitation. And all of a sudden, what's happening is, is because we are so desperate to help push the cultures that matter to us, and then we, we kind of subjugate our, our views on, on faith, and, and we begin to kind of push those and say, well, they're not as important as this. This is the greater good. This is more important. Then what happens is because we compromise, people on the outside are going, look at Christians, right? Their, their Bible says this, but look at what they do. And so the ammunition for them that kind of becomes this like debunking of the faith for people who have not heard the word of God, okay? For people who have not experienced the love of God and healthy community and, and the life-changing relationship that comes through being a believer. When all that they know is that you've got a, a, a Christian who is uh, kind of living however they want to, to kind of be a part of culture, and then you've got somebody going, look at the hypocrisy of Christianity. It's not possible. They can't do that. And then they're going, well, maybe this whole God thing is not real. So, so some guilt, some of the ammunition we're guilty of because we allow some of these other cultures to really matter to us. And again, I don't want to say that Christianity and our faith doesn't matter, but historically followers of Christ have allowed that other culture to to kind of be more important. And then they've allowed there to be sacrifices within their faith. And, and, And why are those reasons? Some of that just happens because we go on autopilot and we have a sin nature and we just kind of do things, right? Sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes we lay in bed and we're grieved and we're sick at our stomach and then we stand up and we make a decision. I'll sacrifice this moral 
decision because I believe that sacrificing this thing that God's called for uh, helps to support what I see as being the greater good. So uh, I just want to look at a couple of scriptures where this is addressed. John, one of the apostles in 1 John chapter 2 says this, beginning in verse 15. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. So it begins by just giving us some instruction. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, so we're just going back to this idea. Is scripture authoritative in our lives? If scripture is authoritative in our lives, then when John is writing right here and John says, hey, be really careful that you are not uh, 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 in love with the world and the cultures of the world and the ideas of the world and the things of the world, be careful that, that your love is not given over to that because if you do, the love of the Father is not in you. That's a, that, guys, that's, that's, that is hard. That is a hard scripture to sit and look at and then know that I have areas of justification in my own life, of self-justification. He goes on, for all that is in, this, in, in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but, but is from the world. So specifically going back to, uh, we'll, we'll use some of the specific areas that we will morally allow ourselves to step out of, and we start talking about desires of the flesh, right? Things that uh, the scripture says are not healthy for us, it's not good for us, it's not... And let me just say this too. A lot of times, especially if you are not in the word and if you are not in community, you will read something that gives some instruction about what not to do and you'll go, oh man, God is just all about rules about what not to do. But if you read things in context, what you understand is God is saying there's a better way to have life. There's a better way to be in healthy relationship, right? So Again, using this idea of sexuality, premarital sex, that, that God says that in, I've made sex for marriage and that it is, it's at its, at its prime, it is at its best, it is at its most beautiful when it is done this way. So when God is saying, hey, don't do it this way, it's not that he's sitting here trying to push you down and stick it to you and he doesn't want you having any fun. What he's actually saying is there is a better way to engage in this. And so John writing here, uh, again, through the Holy Spirit, says that the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So those desires that are contrary to the word of God, they are literally not from God. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so he says, just be really careful when it comes to making decisions on how you're going to live your life because it is those, right, who do the will of the Father and his will is expressed first through the word and secondly inside of our relationship and our relationship will never overrule the word because God says he's not the author of confusion. So he's not gonna come in and write something and then come to you in a dream and be like, hey, I made that rule for everybody except you because you're my favorite, Right? You're, you're my favorite, and you have a totally different set of rules to play by. When people start talking like that, all that they're doing is creating this imaginary world and giving themselves over to the desires of their flesh. And John here says that we can abide in him 
forever when we allow ourselves to live out his will. Paul addresses this too. And I'm only going to address two of these before I get into to, to my, my, my real illustration here. And there are a lot of these types of scriptures, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. Romans chapter 12, verse two says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, what's really important to understand in these scriptures and important to understand here is that there are not exceptions. God does not have an exception here. He does not say, hey, do not be conformed to this world Unless you believe that it's a better way for humanity or unless there are a lot of, you know, really there's a lot at stake. And so what you need to do is, is, is do it differently for the greater good. That's not what he says. He says that you individually, not you as part of a culture, you need to be this type of person first and foremost, Right? Do not be conformed to this world. So when the world says that living one way is the right way and the word of God says that living this way is the right way, we do not conform and go, you know what, man, we got, we got the world on our side. I'm gonna run over here and do it their way. No, Paul says that we are not conformed to this world, but we become what? Transformed. Look at your neighbor and say, be transformed. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That means that you have to think differently. If you're sitting here right now and you're going, man, that's me sometimes. I see the way that the world does things and I want to fit in and I think that there's a better tomorrow and so I sometimes don't do what is God's will for my life. Then Paul says, your mind needs to be renewed that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So I wanna talk about this idea of testing. And this is where I get really excited, is in the idea of what it looks like to be in the position of testing. Now, um, the truth is, and, and hopefully you know this, right? Uh, it is difficult to test yourself, right? So you uh, are in school and you're trying to, to get prepared for a test. That, to close that book and just make up your own test out of your own mind means all you're doing is testing yourself on what you already know. We need tests that uh, in, include all of the information, all of the data, and then we have to step into the test to see if we're able to answer the questions, to meet the demand or the expectation. So the real tests happen when the tests are, are when we allow ourselves to be tested, right? So uh, God has a desire to help you get to a place where you will successfully pass the test, where you will be able to not fear the test, and then be able to take the results and change and adapt to be a better person, more like him. So let's talk about Abram for just a moment, okay? You might be going, who's Abram? We'll get to that in a moment. His name becomes Abraham, so if you'll bear with me, at the point of scripture we're at right now, he goes by the name Abram. And I wanna tell you some really 
interesting things uh, about Abram. Abram is the 10th descendant of Noah. So we get to Genesis chapter 6, and God looks on the world, and it says that every thought of man was wicked, and God was grieved to his heart that he had even made man, right? So this is a, this is a place, like one of those moments where, where when you're reading Scripture, and you, and, and, you, and you see that the creator of humanity is at a point of regret that he did this, that you begin to go, whoa, we have the the, the, we have been given the authority, the power to be able to live our lives in such a way that we can bring our creator to regret? I mean, think about that for a moment. The way you live your life can hurt the heart of God. And God says, my heart, it aches and I need to do something. And so he presents himself to Noah, and Noah says, I believe that you're God, and I'm going to do it your way. Now, interestingly enough, uh, two weeks ago, I was uh, sitting around the house and was working on some things, and I thought, you know what? I never watched uh, uh, the Noah movie with uh, Russell Crowe. Uh, I had heard it was terrible, it was, you know, not biblical, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to try it. I'm going to turn this thing on. And I'm not going to lie to you, I got past the living rocks that were like CGI'd really bad, like claymation. I was like, all right, that's some like artist, like, you know, not everybody does art the same way, okay? And so it's like, it's just happening over here. And, and, and then I'm, I'm watching the movie. I, I don't, I, I think I get about halfway. Maybe I was a little bit further. And I just get to the point where uh, 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 one, the, the one wife of the three sons that is actually on the boat, because the other ladies somehow got written out of the narrative, uh, is pregnant, and Noah's like, hey, if it's a boy, he lives, and if it's a girl, I'm going to kill the baby, and I just turned it off. I was like, all right, this is just, this is like watching uh, a bunch of three-year-olds try to, to tell the Noah story while you have some crazy person kind of pushing them along, right? It, it, it got really ridiculous, so if you haven't seen it, um, don't. Uh, I'm just going to save you. You ever, you ever watched a movie and thought, man, I'd love to have that portion of my life back. Um, thankfully, I was being productive. Uh, I think I was cleaning uh, at the time, so at least things were being cleaned. It wasn't a total loss. Tenth uh, descendant of Noah. This is really great because this gives us some perspective, right? So a uh, little side history lesson for you. I'm not here to debate the age of the earth with you because uh, I don't know how old the earth is. There you go. It could be billions or millions or tens of thousands, and, and you can be really sold out in your opinion, and I'm going to cheer you along. Uh, that's uh, when we talk open-handed, closed-handed theology, that is about as open-handed as you get, right? God is still God, even if the earth is trillions and zillions of years old. I'm great with that. Like, let it be. Uh, but when we talk about some time frames, things that are really interesting is we're 10 generations from Noah, Okay, and we're in a specific time period. So this gives us some, some, some actual perspective to when the flood might have taken place, okay? Uh, how far back we are 
totally different lesson, but 10 generations being mentioned here is pretty significant. Uh, and he was from the Ur of the Chaldees. This is the location where he was from, Ur of the Chaldees. Uh, this is uh, probably somewhere located in southern Mesopotamia, which would be, uh, I believe it said, uh, somewhere between Baghdad and the ocean. So it, where exactly it is, there's debate. Uh, they found the ruins of a pretty major uh, civilization. And, and I think it was like in like 1910, uh, National Geographic, I think it was in the 30s or 40s, came out and said, hey, this is definitely Ur of the Chaldees that was mentioned in Scripture. So a lot of people, because that kind of claim was made, have said this is it. There are other people who have different opinions and say maybe that's not it. My point is that what, what most scholars agree on is that it was somewhere in uh, uh, this, this area of Iraq. And so we know that this is a, uh, an area uh, in the Middle East. It's near Israel. Uh, and it definitely plays a part in the greater story of, of Israel's progression forward. Uh, and so because of this, because we know it was uh, the Chaldeans, we are able to get a time frame that this is somewhere between 700 and 1,000 B.C., all right? So because we know that the story of Abram is taking place somewhere between 700 and 1,000 B.C., and we're 10 generations removed from Noah, then based on what Scripture is telling us that, you know, we are uh, thousands of years, not tens of thousands of years removed from the flood and God kind of doing this like reset, if you will. Again, a story for another time, but it's good because it gives us some perspective on timing. Uh, what we know is that the Chaldeans and their time of rule, uh, ultimately we see Nebuchadnezzar come out as a king of the Chaldeans. We also see Belshazzar come out as king of the Chaldeans. This is just helping you move from Genesis 6 into a lot of the prophetic uh, 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 teachings of the Old Testament and will ultimately move us even into the New Testament. So this is, these Chaldeans, are, they're a really important group of people. Uh, and, and out of the Chaldeans, we see this section of the Israelites that birthed, but they, they remain an important group of people. Uh, his dad, Abram's dad, was an idol salesman. Uh, the reason uh, that this is important is it helps us to understand that we're 10 generations removed from the flood, 10 generations removed from uh, a herald of righteousness, as Peter calls him, Noah, who is declaring the one true God, the one God that created all things. It only took 10 generations to have multiple gods being uh, presented and a society being established that allowed somebody to make a living selling idols to gods, right? So we know that we've already fallen into wickedness and Abram is the son of an idol salesman uh, and would have grown up in that culture and, and God's going to present himself. So the Chaldeans though, historically, were highly influential, highly influential in the world around them and they were highly educated, so even when the Chaldeans saw themselves being defeated, their education, their influence would permeate uh, the next kingdom, 
all right? Uh, and so uh, Chaldean actually stopped being known as a race of people, and historically we will read it in, in texts as being a social class of very intelligent people. So you would be referred to as a Chaldean. It did not mean necessarily that you were a Chaldean by bloodline. It meant that you were really intelligent, Right? So this is an intelligent group of people, this bloodline that Abram comes out of. So uh, when we hear the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3.8, the references there to him being the king of the Chaldeans, uh, wise men and astrologers during the time of the Jewish captivity in Babylon uh, as Chaldeans are referenced here in these passages. So we see this constant reference back to these Chaldeans. Uh, and uh, this group of people kept a detailed astrological record for 360 years, beginning with uh, Daniel. And it is because of this that the Chaldeans, who were referred to as the Magi, would be able to come out of that region and show up and understand what the star of David marking the birth of the Messiah would mean. So they knew how to keep good records. They were an intelligent group of people that we see present at Jesus's birth, all right? This is what most scholars piece together when we're talking about Chaldeans. And the reason I bring it up is Abram is not some like crazy backwoods bumpkin. He's an intelligent person who's been a part of a culture. He understands how things work, right? He understands how to think for himself. He's a problem solver, and this gets him into some trouble. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, all right? Living in, uh, in an area that is uh, godless in the sense of an actual true living God filled with false gods, God presents himself and it says that the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And so he comes to Abram and he says, you are going, I am going to use you to do something that is amazing. This is what he says. I have a destiny and a purpose for you, right? I have a destiny. I have a purpose for you. Every single one of us has a destiny and a purpose. And every single one of us at some point in our lives, we will hear that prompting from God that will say, I'm calling you to something greater, something better. The reason that a man like Abram is mentioned in scripture is because he is one of the few that chooses to say yes. This is why when we stand before God in judgment, when we stand before him and and we have to give an account for all things, okay, the the idea that, well, I didn't know you were real. I didn't know you existed. How was I supposed to know? It won't work because God is at work through all of creation declaring his glory, right? In the Psalms, it says that the mountains and the hills break out before him right? That, that, that the world around us identifies with the creator and that in some way, some capacity, at some point, he reveals himself to each of us and says, I've created you for something great. Will you step into it? Abram said, yes, I'll do that. I'll step into whatever it is 
that you have for me. He says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Can I tell you that this is the way that a father works, that this is the way that God works in your life, that if you will be obedient and serve him, he will bless those that bless you and woe be it to those that come against you. You don't have to fight your own battles. God will make the way. He'll take care of it for you. He says, step into the calling I have for you. Step into the purpose I have for you. Live this thing out and I'll make a way. And this is what he says. He says, I will be your source. And this is really important for us to understand because he says this to Abram and Abram doesn't get it. He goes out to the place where God said to go and a famine hits the land where God said to go. And Abram reasons that it would probably be better right now to head down to Egypt. Now, again, something that's really worth good for me to kind of put out there for you is that being obedient to God when it comes to the test doesn't mean that you're always in the land of milk and honey. Sometimes God's going to let you walk through famine. And what God is looking for is will you be obedient in famine and instead of going and being in the place, God, you think, again, just think about this. God's totally shocked by the famine and is like, all right, Noah, this is not, I mean, not Noah, Abram, this is not going the way that I thought it was gonna go. Uh, there's a famine here. I don't know what to do. Yeah, I know I created everything and all I'd have to do is speak something into existence. And yeah, I grew a little vine to shade Jonah, but your family, I can't do anything for you. Go to Egypt, right? No, he made this decision on his own. And when he gets down to Egypt, he, he ends up uh, uh, submitting to the culture that he's going into. And he's afraid for his life. And so he's afraid that because his wife is so beautiful that they'll kill him for his wife. And so what he says is, hey, let's just lie and you be my sister while we're there. Because every wife wants to have their husband say that, right? I mean, Valentine's Day cards, guys, I'm giving you some ideas. Hey, let's pretend to be brother and sister for a year. No, that's not how this thing works. And so she goes along with this and what did God say? God said that those who bless you, I will bless. And then that those that come against you, they will be taken care of. And that was not relegated specifically to his obedience. It was God saying, I, I'm choosing you. Like I'm for you, not against you. And so he goes down here making a mess of things. And what does God do? God brings great strife onto Pharaoh's house. And then it ultimately is found out that this is not uh, uh, Abram's sister, but this is actually his wife. And Pharaoh is like, what's wrong with you? Like, I'm a pagan and I knew better than that, right? Okay. And so he ends up fleeing out of there and, and he's able to keep all of the things that were given to him. And so even in the midst of stepping into culture and doing it culture's way, he continued to find provision. This is important for us to understand in the direction that I'm going because you cannot measure provision as being in the will of God. That doesn't mean that you're in the will of God, okay? God can absolutely work by withholding provision to get you back into the will of God, but God loves you and he is for you and you are his when you've made that declaration and you can be taking things into your own hands and God still be out there protecting you, just like a daddy will for his own children when they're making foolish mistakes. 
A dad will show up in the midst of some poor decision-making and redeem a situation. Why? Because that's his child. Something is hardwired inside of them, right? Obviously, when it comes to those relationships, there are tipping points. There are hard decisions to be made. But I think a lot of times we push the will of God, especially when it comes to Scripture, off to the side, and we go, oh, I'm still good. I didn't get struck by lightning, so I must be okay. God is good with what I'm doing because I'm continuing to be taken care of, and it's not the case. God's not okay with where you're at, but God loves you, and he's providing for you, right? So they go down into Egypt. It's a giant mess, and what happens is they, they come back, and God speaks again in Genesis 15. He says after, the, says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Now, this is obviously not just something that God has promised, but also something Abram now desires to be a father. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And he says, look, God, you're bringing all these resources in. There's provision. You're multiplying. You're increasing. And now when I die, my name, my legacy won't be continued. It's going to go over to this other man. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household uh, uh, will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He says, your very own son. He begins this conversation. I don't have time to go through Genesis 12 all the way uh, through the next 20 chapters with you guys today. But God is telling him, you and Sarah are going to have a child. And through that child, there is going to be a blessing that impacts the entire world. Verse 5, and he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God says, listen, I'm not just bringing you a, a child. I want you to understand your legacy. So get, I want you tonight to sit down and look into the stars and understand how I am working to bring provision to your life. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Right? So God spoke. Abram said, Yes, I believe what you're saying. And God counts it as righteousness. Paul, when he's writing in Hebrews, will go on to talk about this idea of righteousness and that this was his salvation, that, a, 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 that, that there would be a, a seed that would pass forward, that there was the hope of humanity was coming through his bloodline. And he says that, that Abram didn't even know it, but he was believing in Jesus before Jesus was given a name. And because his faith was in Jesus, there was established his righteousness. So that's our hope, right? Is that by believing in Jesus, our faith, our hope, our eternity is established. And then we're called to walk in holiness. We're called to walk in accordance with scripture. So uh, we have Sarai, and then we have her, her uh, uh, maidservant, uh, Hagar, who was uh, given to them uh, by the Pharaoh in Egypt, and they concoct this plan, and they convince Abram to sleep with Hagar because Sarai is barren and not able to have a child, and Hagar becomes pregnant. 
And this is problematic. God shows back up and he says, you're not understanding what I'm talking about. Listen, uh, your, your uh, child with Hagar, whom they name Ishmael, uh, uh, is, is not the son I promised you. I promised you and Sarai a son. And so this is what he says. He says, you're not understanding. You and I are in covenant. And so as a mark of this covenant, we've got to take this a little bit further. Isn't this just like parenting, right? We go and talk to our kids and then we think, you know what, they got this. And then they make a mess out of it and we come back and we're like, I'm not sure what part you didn't understand. Let's talk about this again. And then we walk away and they make a mess of it. And and, and you, you and your spouse, Carmen and I, we're like, are, are, are we crazy, right? Like, isn't this what we said? And we go and we sit back down and we go talk with them again. And so this is what he says. He says, we're gonna mark the covenant. I'm gonna change your name. Uh, and in Genesis 17, he comes and he reaffirms them. I have a plan, a purpose. Look, I'm with you. I'm not against you. And I'm changing your name. You will be Abraham. Your wife will be Sarah, okay? So, so moving forward, we're gonna change your identity. And why is that? Because there is something about your old identity, your old way of thinking, your old cultural influences that keep showing up. See, this is the problem with this story from the, from the outsider's perspective, all right? The outsider's perspective, and, and I'm, I'm probably gonna go a few minutes over. I'm, I'm busting to get to my point here that I'm really excited about. Uh, but, but from the outsider's perspective, they read this story of, of Hagar and they go, look, she was somebody's property. And, and, and look at this, this is, this is a problem that this is in scripture. And, and, and what we find here is not that God ordained this. In fact, God says, you guys keep making a mess of it. Why? Because you're doing it the way you've seen it done, not the way I'm telling you to do it. You don't need slaves. You don't need to run around and try to fulfill this destiny by your own hand, by sleeping with somebody else. Listen, when I told you that my plan for you was this, what I needed you to do was to just be obedient. I know what I'm talking about. And he says, so to help you stop thinking like Abram and to help you to stop thinking like Sarai, I'm gonna change your names. Now, in, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament church, the New Covenant, a group of people called Christians who were entering into marriage, they took on this idea of, of a name change. And the reason was that by taking a single name between a husband and a wife, it was symbolic of my identity is changed so that the world knows I no longer see myself the way that I used to see myself. I am now one with somebody else. Can I tell you that in order to be married, one plus one equaling one means that something in you has to be different? And that the call from Genesis, when he says that a man is to move away from his mother and father and cleave to his wife, that the idea from the beginning for marriage was that you would not be the same person, you would not be known the same way, your identity would be different. Now culturally, today and for thousands of years, that has been a source of debate and conversation around this idea of independence. 
And I will tell you, I do not want to be known first and foremost as Jim Simpson. I want to be known as Carmen's husband. I am in love with my wife. 20 years in this November, and I am more in love with her today than I was the day that we got married. And why is that? Because we are just really intentional in the way that we are living our lives. And so he says, I'm changing your names. You've got to stop thinking the way you've been thinking. You've got to stop doing the things that you've been doing. And then comes Isaac, child of laughter. I can imagine that that brought a smile to some people's face the day that he was born, seeing that God's promises are yes and amen. And Isaac is on the scene and the thing, the very thing that God promised has shown up. It's powerful to see the fruit of God's promises in your life. It's encouraging. So this was the passage that I'm sitting here meditating on because my oldest, his name is Isaac. And what comes next is this passage that just is, it's so hard to think about. It's so difficult to to process, right? Genesis chapter 22, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. What does it say here? Tested him. He doesn't say Abram, he says Abraham. He says, hey, I'm I'm talking to, to Abraham. You've got a new identity. I need to test you. I need to see if you are Abram or if you are Abraham. I've brought you the son. I told you I was bringing you the son. I told you my promise was coming and it's come. Now we need to, now we need to do a little test. We need to do a little test. Verse two, he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This seems barbaric. It seems like like something that our loving God would not ask. And the fact that God asks is not really my problem. Like that's, that's not my real why. My real why isn't why would God ask this? My real why is why did Abraham say, okay? Why did he say yes? And, and you're going, well, it's just simple, blind obedience. And, and yet, uh, or, or maybe this is just the idea that this is what you do, but Abraham had no issue debating God. Remember just a few chapters back, God says, hey, I'm coming to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Just wanted to give you a heads up. And what does Abraham do? God, you know, hey, slow your roll. We need to talk about this. But what if there's a hundred righteous people there? Maybe, Maybe you shouldn't do this, God. Maybe this shouldn't happen. So when we're talking about coming and bringing destruction on a group of people who have turned their back on God, representing uh, some type of ideology that is contrary to scripture. And Abraham says, God, why would you do that? But when it comes to sacrificing his own son, he's like, you got it. 
And what I think is fascinating is that Abraham's culture, let me back up, Abram's culture that he came from, what they did normally was sacrifice their children. It was the norm to have your child sacrificed. There was nothing to giving up your child. Let your child die. This is how you make the gods happy. So this idea was not something new to him the same way that raining fire and brimstone down was. And Noah said, oh yeah, I'm used to this. I, I love Isaac, but I trust you, God. So I'm going to do this. And as he gets him up there and he prepares him and he sets him on the altar, Verse 12, he's, the, 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 the angel of the Lord speaks. It's when it says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. This is the difference. God isn't just, gosh, I hope I can get this out of me. I, God is not just simply running a test to see if Noah will do what he's asked to do, what, no, I keep saying Noah, Abraham, what if Abraham will do what he has asked him to do, all right, what he's also doing at the exact same time is saying, you know how you keep making a mess out of things by doing it the world's way? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to set this thing up for the world's way so that I can show you that where every other God in your imagination has had you follow through, I'm telling you, I don't need your children. I do not need your kids to be sacrificed on the altar. I do not need that from you. I'm not asking that of you. This is what happens. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Can I tell you that when you are standing in the face of a culture that is saying you cannot possibly do what scripture is telling you to do and you're sitting there going if i do it the way scripture says do it i'm not gonna make it i don't have the money to raise the child i don't have the resources to make this thing happen and god is saying there will always be a ram in the thicket god is saying i will always make a way when did I abandon you? When have I left you? When was there not enough? I will always make a way. And the provision that you need will not be your provision. I'll make the provision. I'll give you out of my abundance so that you can pay your bills. So that you can make a way. There's a huge lesson that's happening in Abram's life and it's this. Don't do it the world's way because my way is a better way. My way protects your children, makes a way for their future, and my way will bring forth the Messiah. And you think, well, man, Abram did that. Abraham, he made a way for Jesus. Do you know what our goal and our purpose is? To bring forth the return of Jesus. And how do we do that? The scripture says that we share the gospel to the farthest corners of the world. Do you know where that begins? First in Jerusalem. 
And it's more than just feeding somebody who's hungry. That's a way of showing the kindness of God. But they don't really need earthly food. They need an eternal God in their lives. And as we share the gospel and as we are the church, we prepare the way for the return of the Messiah. We have the same task given to us today that Abraham had, and that is be obedient unto him before we are given over to obedience from the world. Now, a lot of times in our lives, this is where I'm closing, a lot of times in our lives, we go, well, you know what? I've made mistakes. You know what? I did that thing. I slept with that person. I stole that stuff. I have not modeled this. I have, I have been the one that has been telling everybody, yeah, I heard from God. He showed up. I moved out here. I moved down to Egypt. All of my wealth, look at everything I've got. It all comes from God. But when it comes to the way that I actually live my life, I don't line up with the word of God. God is continuing to work on you. But, but that might be you right? And you might go, well, Pastor Jim, but I have a past. And, and this was something God showed me last night while I was working on my message, that your past does not define you, but it can always refine you. Do you understand how powerful that is? Some people let their past define them. And God says, I want to use all things to work for the good, right? He will use your past to refine you so that you will not be the same person that you were. You'll no longer be Abram. You'll be Abraham. You'll no longer be Sarai. You'll be Sarah. You'll be walking in new covenant, in new purpose. And all the time you'll look back and go, I remember the day that Jesus became Lord of my life. And it was long before I got my act together. But when I got my act together, oh man, let me tell you, Jesus, he showed up. Let's stand to our feet. God will always, always make a way. So I wanna take a minute to close and I wanna begin by praying for those of you in this room who are not followers of Christ or maybe you're just far away from him right now. The way that you're living, you feel like, man, I don't hear from him. I feel disconnected then I wanna pray with you right now that you would invite Jesus to just be Lord of your life, to come and take control. If you're watching online, I would invite you, if you do not know Jesus, to pray this prayer. So right now, if we could, with every head bowed and every eye closed in this room, uh, if you could just pray this prayer, if you wanna know Jesus, you would just pray and say, Jesus, I ask you, be Lord of my life. I need your provision. I wanna walk into the destiny you created me for. Show me the right way. Jesus, you are my only hope, my only hope. And I need you and I love you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I wanna pray for the believers in the room, the believers who are online watching right now. And I, wanna, I want you to pray this prayer with me and I want you to pray and I want you to say, God, Show me the way and give me the audacity to stand first and foremost within the culture of my faith and then secondarily within all of the other cultures I identify with. Allow my faith to permeate those cultures. Allow me as a follower of you to make decisions that first and foremost always honor you. God, I know it'll be difficult 
and I understand that on my own, I don't have the resources or the wherewithal to make it happen, but I'm trusting that just like with Abraham and with Sarah, you showed up and you made a way that there will be a ram in the thicket for me, that when I am at the breaking point, where I am at the place where I am at in the most need, I will not fear and I will not waver. I do not care what everyone else is saying because you will show up and make a way. In the mighty, mighty name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen and amen. Let's worship.